Hello, and welcome to Alternative Power Plays, the podcast from Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney and the Brattle Group. I'm John Povolitis, an energy attorney at Buchanan. I'm joined by my fellow energy attorney colleague at Buchanan and co-host of this podcast, Alan Seltzer. In the past, we've used this podcast to speak with companies across industries about the new and innovative ways in which they are getting electricity to their facilities, buildings, and other sites. On this episode, however, we want to take that energy discussion to an even higher level, specifically to Washington, D.C. and the impending midterm elections. Today, Alan and I are fortunate to welcome another of our Buchanan colleagues to the podcast, Ed Hill. Ed is a principal in Buchanan's government relations practice in Washington, D.C. Before joining Buchanan, Ed spent time as chief of staff for Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and as legislative assistant, legislative director, and deputy chief of staff for former Senator Pete Domenici of New Mexico. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Hello, and thanks for having me. Now, Ed, uh, it's early April, and believe it or not, we're just seven months away from the midterm elections. I'm sure everyone has started seeing campaign ads on their TVs and in other media. With the Democrats looking to retain control of the House and Senate, and the Republicans looking to take back one or both, these elections are bound to be as contentious as ever. However, there are a number of priorities in the energy and power space that the White House and the Democratic-controlled Congress would ideally like to get accomplished before November to head off any chance that Republicans win majorities in one or both houses of Congress and derail their plans. Conversely, the Republicans have their own agenda. So let's discuss these matters in greater detail and how these competing agendas might be harmonized. So Ed, let's start off with the bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed last fall. What's in that bill that affects the energy and power space? And more specifically, what's in the bill that might impact renewables? It's a great question. There's a lot in there. There's a title in there uh, entitled Grid Infrastructure and Resiliency that has $73 billion. Uh, Within that, um, that money is gonna be spent to improve capacity for solar, onshore and offshore wind. Uh, There's another new and exciting provision in there that should uh, speed up um, the permitting process. And and that is, uh, it provides uh, FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, uh, with sole siting authority uh, for previously designated uh, national corridors. Uh, Something that's brand new, should speed up all these projects. So that's another tool in the toolbox, so to speak, to go along with that uh, 73 billion. There's another title in there for supply chains for clean energy technologies, basically creating our own critical mineral industry, whether it be through recycling or obtaining it here within the United States, that's going to be key for a lot of what we want to do, whether it be electric vehicles, solar panels, et cetera. And then finally, there's another seven and a half billion dollars in there uh, for EV infrastructure that's exciting, which all goes hand in hand again with the grid, uh, the critical minerals, it's all uh, part of uh, the same puzzle. Ed, there's a lot of stuff going on there, as you indicate. And, and I guess the next logical question is, you know, what can Congress and the administration do between now and the November midterms to really energize or bring these parts of the bill to life as you've just discussed them? 
Sure. It's and with any piece of legislation or or any uh, rulemaking that's done, whether it be at the federal level or the state level, it's a matter of of keeping the foot on the gas, so to speak. Um, in a timely manner, you need to continue to roll out each of the programs. And and to date, uh, almost on a on a daily basis, we see an announcement coming from it could be the Department of Energy or or the Environmental Protection Agency. FERC, um, Department of Transportation, about a new program that's being rolled out. So if the administration with, with pressure from Congress uh, can keep that up, the, the sooner these programs are out there and that money is available, uh, the sooner we, we can uh, get moving. Another much talked about piece of legislation, Ed, is the Build Back Better bill. Can you tell us what's in that bill that would impact the energy space? Sure, that's been a bit of a moving target uh, over the past year, but primarily um, there are clean energy and, and manufacturing uh, tax credits in there. Um, do, do two things in essence. One, it would provide some um, certainty, something that the developers and, and business folks always want. Uh, certainty so that they can move forward on a project. As of now, a fairly substantial reform of the tax code. Uh, there's currently 30 plus or so uh, tax credits in the energy and, and efficiency space. And what, what this bill would do would be to reduce it down to three credits, um, three, three simple credits, and then have them in place for 10 years, as opposed to what often happens nowadays, where on a year-to-year -year basis, Congress has to extend it. And oftentimes they miss the deadline and you're now into the, the new year, the new tax year. And of course, that goes back to the whole certainty thing. Uh, there's been talk about potentially having a methane fee in there. That looks less and less likely. And then timely that we're, we're having this, um, this podcast right now, President Biden has rolled his budget out. And interestingly enough, within that budget, it talks about Build Back Better, but it doesn't provide any specific costs or revenue numbers, i.e. the amount of money that would be raised uh, from any uh, tax uh, changes to the tax code. It, one, one could look at it in many different ways that they, they don't want to put something prescriptive out there. Uh, they wanna provide maximum flexibility. As we'll talk about in a couple of minutes, there's a Senator from West Virginia who has received a, a lot of headlines over uh, his uh, reluctance to move forward. So by keeping it as broad as possible, uh, I think it's maximum flexibility would be my very quick analysis of, of the budget proposal and that provision or lack thereof. Do you think Build Back Better has any chance of passing ahead of the midterm elections? For example, can Senator Manchin and the rest of the Senate find common ground that might get some form of the bill passed this session, as the Democrats have been trying to do for months? You know, and again, it's, it's very timely that, that we're here um, doing this podcast now because Senator Manchin has announced a renewed willingness um, publicly in two different speeches uh, to engage on a smaller version of the bill. He said that uh, he thinks there needs to be an April or May uh, timeframe to really get the hard work done and, and finish the bill out. Um, I think the question becomes is, can um, Senator Manchin and, and within the Democratic Party, can the more progressive members who, if you remember at the beginning, wanted to do something in the $6 trillion um, range or ballpark, so to speak. And if we're now talking about a very limited bill, what Senator Manchin has said is, okay, let's do the, the, all the clean energy stuff, the green energy stuff. Let's um, raise some taxes uh, on the more wealthy and let's do something with prescription drugs 
and also put some of that revenue back into deficit reduction. That, that is a far, far um, smaller package than originally in, uh, envisioned. So the question then becomes, if Manchin can get to a good place, can the more progressive members who had visions of something much bigger, is that going to be enough for them? Or do they can't they accept that? So those are some dynamics to, to be looking out for uh, over the next couple of months. And now, as those of us in the energy industry know, there's always a lot of discussion about FERC and its impact on energy policies and practices. One of the current FERC hot potatoes is the new gas pipeline approval process. How has FERC changed the criteria for how it issues certificates to build gas pipeline projects and why now? Sure. So I think the why now question is, is a, obviously a function of, of a change in the administrations. We now have the Biden administration. Uh, the, the, the commission is now controlled by three Democrats, which, as evidenced by the question you just posed, there has been a shift in focus um, to things much uh, more climate uh, related. And to put this into context, Two months ago, FERC issued um, a new policy statement uh, with an increased emphasis on environmental justice and climate impact. Um, that was uh, that was received a lot of, of pushback um, from Republicans and Senator Manchin and and industry. Um, and that pushback just last month at the um, March business meeting actually resulted. In, in a unanimous about face from FERC. They actually pulled the policy back and have it now as, as a draft policy. And they're gonna seek additional input and consider changes. And another big thing that came out of that is the revised policy statement, regardless of when it goes into effect, will only apply to future projects, uh, not any pending projects. And again, it goes back to a theme that we've talked about today, and that's certainty. At least it provides a little bit of certainty uh, to the projects. And, and in this case, you know, FERC, FERC listened. Uh, they listened uh, to, to the concerns that were raised and they're going back at it. And so we'll, we'll see what the, the revised policy statement looks like. Ed, it sounds like you're saying the new policy doesn't apply to pipelines in the pipeline. Correct. <laughs> very, very much so. Ed, last month, the Securities and Exchange Commission proposed the much-anticipated climate disclosure rule that mandates public companies tell their shareholders and the federal government how their business activities affect climate. How has this executive action been received so far on the Hill, and what are lobbyists saying about it? So not surprisingly, uh, the reaction is broken down along party lines. Uh, Democrats are very supportive. Uh, Republicans very opposed. Republicans uh, say that there is a lot of uncertainty uh, created uh, by the new requirement, uh, particularly the materiality standard uh, that the SEC is using. That, that's what companies, the standard they have to use to disclose information uh, that would be material to investors. And if, if you're applying that materiality standard to climate change, that, that can, the Republicans claim and, and opponents claim that, that that will be very vague and, and difficult to comply with. And obviously, I think this is one of those cases that is um, headed to the courts, and ultimately the courts are going to decide this one, whether or not the SEC actually has the authority um, to issue um, you know, a regulation like this within the scope of its authority. 
Ed, uh, I think we'd like to shift gears uh, a little bit here for the moment and, and talk about something that is clearly at the forefront of the news. You know, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine being literally on everyone's minds uh, at the present time, we would really be remiss if we didn't briefly discuss, you know, how the energy space here in the United States has been impacted by that war and conflict. Uh, and specifically, what energy price impacts have you observed to date? And do you think that the White House and Congress can get agreed on how to mitigate those effects and really get on the same page? So that's a, that's a great question. And, and I, I think obviously the, the most, most pronounced impact has been um, the price at the pump. That's something that everyone notices. And when you have those pictures splashed across the news, of in some cases six dollars a gallon fuel in California and five dollars here, etc. Uh, people take notice of that. That that's something that's very easy to to understand. Um, the, you know the interesting thing about gas prices is, and and we've seen this over the, the course of time, spikes, um, finger pointing. It's referred to as as the the rocket and feather principle. The prices go up like a rocket. And prices come down like a feather. And I think that's a very apt description of, of how things happen. And then to, to your question about what can be done about it. And honestly, in the short term, with the summer driving season coming up, there's not a lot that can be done. Um, could there be um, rebates, gas tax holiday? Yes. But you, you cannot just turn the production spigot on and off and say, okay, let's produce another um, you know, X number of, of barrels a day, it just doesn't work like that. Um, so short of the gas tax holiday or rebates, um, expect uh, continued finger pointing. And finally, Ed, uh, I wanted to ask you to take out your crystal ball for a minute. Um, we've talked so much today on this podcast about policies and directions, legislation and so forth. And I think now, uh, all of our listeners would really like to hear, you know, what do you really predict will happen in the midterms this fall? And how might the energy and power industry be affected by the results of those elections? It's a great question. And I, I think that conventional wisdom says that the Republicans will retake the House of Representatives. And in the Senate, uh, what it's going to come down to in the Senate is there are a number of um, contested primaries uh, across the country. And it's going to come down to candidates. Uh, do the do Republican voters um, choose the most viable uh, candidate, or are you going to have some candidates that emerge from the primary to the general election in X state uh, not be as viable? And it's all about candidates. And so we will see which candidates emerge from the primaries, and that's going to determine if Republicans can retake the Senate. Uh, if if either um, if Republicans retake either chamber, the, the natural result is going to be a lot less ability for the Biden administration to enact its uh, legislative agenda. So what you're going to see is what happens in many administrations, regardless of party, if you don't have control of all levers of power, so to speak, you're going to see an even greater use of, of executive authority uh, through rulemaking, and, and other uh, tools like that. And of course, then the, the more rulemaking there is, the more litigation there's gonna be. I already mentioned <laughs> that the, the SEC uh, rule is likely uh, to wind up in court. We already have an, an interesting case 
uh, before the Supreme Court uh, regarding the EPA's authority to regulate emissions from power plants. That they already did oral arguments last month. That decision will be coming down. That, that's a big one. So again, it, it all goes back to, to the courts in, in many cases. And, and I think the Republicans, to close this out, will control at least one chamber uh, of Congress, if not both. And I, I really want to thank you for joining us today and giving us your insight into what the conversations like in, the D, in DC, both respect to existing policy and some of your prognostications. It's always enlightening to hear your perspective as someone that has deep roots on Capitol Hill. And of course, we also want to thank our listeners as well. For any company in the energy space or a business thinking about their energy supply options, the attorneys at Buchanan and our economic consultant partners at the Brattle Group can help businesses across industries manage complex transactions, regulation, litigation, and more. And for anyone looking for insights into what's coming down the pipeline at the federal, state, and local level, the government relations folks at Buchanan can help businesses across industries have a say in our legislative process and prepare for what's to come. Visit us at BIPC.com and Brattle.com to learn more. I'm John Povolitis, along with my colleagues, Alan Seltzer and Ed Hild at Buchanan, Ingersoll and Rooney. We'll see you next time on Alternative Power Place.